Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 44. And uh, I apologize if my voice sounds kind of different. It is. Uh, Spring has sprung in Wenatchee and uh, in eastern North Carolina as well. And uh, it has uh, not been favorable to me. I have allergies that uh, the allergist said I would grow out of when I had an allergy test 50 years ago. So I'm not sure how to take that. Either I haven't grown up, or he was wrong, <laughs> because I still have the allergies um, that uh, just not as bad as they used to, but I still have them. But, so I've got some drainage issues going on, so hopefully my voice will stay there, not have any problems. It's been doing better. Uh, since we've been here, because spring hasn't really sprung here uh, as much, so the pollen count is way lower, and uh, I've noticed, I've been seeing some improvements with each day being here, so maybe that's why the car isn't working, so I can stay here a little bit longer before going back or something, but anyway. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44, let's read them here this morning. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. They brought him to Jesus. They cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and come past thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. 
and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to be in thy house. We pray that you would be at work with your word now, that our hearts and minds as believers who are gathered here are attentive, eager to hear the truths that are here to be molded and shaped into the image of Christ. We pray, Father, for that soul that's lost, draw them unto thee. May they see their need of salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. And may they come in repentance and faith, believing that Christ died in their place for their sins. Father, we thank you and praise you for the opportunities we have to be together. May we go forth rejoicing that it has been good to have been in thy house and give you all the honor and praise and glory that's deserving of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I want us to look this morning just really at a small portion of this text and looking at the bittersweet tears at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Uh, today we call this day what? Palm Sunday. For the very thing that we are just reading here, it is on the first day of the week that Christ comes into uh, Jerusalem for the last time. It is the start of what is often called the Passion Week uh, because of all that has take, that is taking place in the life of Christ starting on Sunday um, before his crucifixion. It is Jesus' last trip, as we know, coming to Jerusalem. He has uh, had his mind set on this. His eyes have been set like flint, as we read elsewhere in the scriptures, as he's come down from Galilee, determined to come to Jerusalem because he's on a mission. This is what he came for. The culmination of that this week represents started in Bethlehem when he was born in that lowly manger. He was born that he might die. And now that time is coming. The great sacrifice for our sin is upon him and it is getting heavier and heavier. I think as we read these last concluding chapters of the Gospels, as we read of this week, I really think we don't really grasp the gravity, the depth, the fullness of what Christ is experiencing. Because he as God knows everything. He as man has the frailties that our bodies possess. And it is that great mystery, if you will, of that coming together of the God-man. He's fully God, yes, and he's fully man, too. And uh, the weight that that bears, particularly on the human side, uh, that his body is bearing. I don't think we really grasp what's just the gravity of what's going on there. But I trust that in time we do. Not that we'll ever experience it ourselves, but just understand just what Christ is going through. Uh, and he's doing that for us, the great love that is being depicted there, that he is, is marching to. And we thank Thank him for that. But we have what is called the triumphal entry. It is his presentation as king to Israel. Something that he has sought not to do for the past three and a half-ish years. As people have sought to make him king, he has pulled away. He has pulled back and not had that happen. And now... He fully embraces that. 
with this triumphal entry. I am coming as a suffering king, as a humble king. And uh, he presents himself that people pick up on this um, and, and note that, that you know, they're shouting. They see that for many of them, probably finally, Jesus is accepting the kingship. But as we know the gospel story, the Jews primarily are looking for a conquering king, are they not? They want King David to get them out from underneath the heel of Rome. To kick the Romans out of the promised land. Unfortunately, I don't think they grasped he's not on a white charger. He's on a donkey. And the donkey and the fact that he is doing this, yes, they recognize him as king, but they're not understanding the implications here. This is not a conquering king. This is a king in his humility riding a donkey. Christ is about to suffer the most humiliating acts to be placed upon a man. As king. When he suffers and dies in our place. Do the people grasp fully that? I don't think so. They're rejoicing, yes, and I'm not decrying that. Now, we should be rejoicing, too, with that understanding. He is coming as king. And he did present himself as king, but as a suffering king for their sins. But in his coming, Luke is the only one that mentions as he stands here, as he comes over the, the Mount of Olives, and it really is kind of a ridge, as opposed to just, you know, kind of a mountain peak. And uh, as, again, as, as we read, as I read the scriptures and, and read of these places, they start coming to my mind, having been there uh, not that long, far back. And uh, I can picture maybe where they came over, much where we came into Jerusalem for our first night. Um, the, the tour, and I'm sure probably every tour, tries to come into Jerusalem at sunset. But you come over, at least we did, to what is called Mount Scopus, which is part of the Mount of Olives. And uh, we gather there, we, we take some pictures, you can see the Temple Mount to the southwest of where you're at. But it's a low spot uh, on that ridge that you come over, and I dare say that this may be the, the path from Bethphage and Bethany, that Christ is coming to, and he starts the descent down the Kidron Valley that is on the east side of Jerusalem proper, the old Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount. And as he comes over that ridge and he can see Jerusalem, just like we did as we traveled in and came over that ridge and parked, and there's Jerusalem. You, you can't miss it on that hillside. And I say hill, I call it a mountain, but... In our line of thinking, that's a hill. It's not a mountain like we think of here in the West. But he sees Jerusalem. And you, truly, you can see all of Jerusalem from there. And his thoughts immediately come to bringing tears to his eyes. Verse 41 states that, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. 
The word wept there speaks to sob, to wail aloud. This is not just someone with tears streaming down his face. And that's it. There's a a wailing going on. There is a sobbing. There is the understanding that all those around him know he is weeping. Whether you see him from the front or whether you see him from behind, you know he's weeping. Because of the emotions that are here. The causes for those tears Interesting to see, Griffith Thomas, in his commentary on this, states, Having received the acclaim of the crowds, he obtains his first view of the city where he is to meet his death. Amid the general rejoicing of the Passover season, his thoughts are far away. Let us dwell reverently on on these tears of our Lord and try to realize their deep meaning. And I want us to follow that thought that Griffith Thomas has there to to look at this, the fact that he's weeping over this city at a time when there's great rejoicing going on all around him. This great crowd that is with him, and as I recall, that's the word that Matthew uses. It is a great multitude. Multitudes are always following Jesus. But this is a great multitude. This is a huge number of people. I mean... They've come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They're required to, according to the law, they're to come to the temple uh, for Passover week. And so the Jews are gathering. So, you know, the city is flush with people. And these people are now, this great multitude are rejoicing that here Jesus is willing to present himself as king of the Jews, and here he is coming into the city, and we're rejoicing, and he's standing there on this hillside as he sees the city, and he is weeping. An interesting contrast. People with smiles... People with hearts raised to God, praising God. And the man that they're praising God about is standing there in an open sob, weeping. He's weeping because he knows. He's God in the human flesh. He knows what's coming. He knows what's happened in this city. I mean, he knows the end from the beginning. And he's wrapping that all up in this one moment. And as he considers Jerusalem, he sees abused privileges. I mean, Jerusalem has much. Jerusalem is the center of Israel. It's been that way since David. He bought the threshing floor, which would be the home to the temple. It became the capital of Israel since the days of David. Anybody who thinks Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel needs to really look at the scriptures and find out. Yeah, that's the capital. They've always understood that to be the capital. 
It is their place of worship. It's beautiful for situation. The psalmist in Psalm 48 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. This is Jerusalem. A great city that has a a past, a history, a joyous one, a troubled one. But Jesus is, is encapsulating that all in this moment and realizing that they've abused their privileges. Jerusalem has already been sacked once with the Babylonians. The temple destroyed, eventually rebuilt, and the one that he's looking at in his day had been renovated by King Herod. It is a shell of what it once was. I mean, you stop to consider what is going on in his day. There's a temple. But when we go back to see the first temple, what did God do when the temple was dedicated? He came down and dwelt in it. The the Shekinah glory was there. The glory that we see that followed, that led Israel through the wilderness. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. The significance of God's presence with them. Something that Ezekiel speaks about and watches departs Jerusalem. Have they seen the glory of God on their temple in Jesus' day? No. It's not been there. (coughs) It's been vacant. We know the intertestamental period, it's silent. There's been no prophets till John. And Jesus is understanding this and bringing this out as he has these few verses here, but he's understanding the abused privileges, their sin, and people don't care. There's indifference. They're going through the motions of what God told them to do, but where is God's presence in all of this? It's missing. And people don't seem to really care. We're just doing what we know we're supposed to do. There's rejected possibilities. Christ has been there for three and a half years. He's been to Jerusalem often to preach, to teach, to, if you will, point them to God, bring them back to him. And they've not really been listening. In Luke chapter 13, as he's there on a previous time, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. What an indictment on Jerusalem. I mean, to be known as you who kill the prophets? 
You stone those that have been sent to thee? This is where God has set up his house. This is where his name is. And this is what you've been doing to his servants? There's vice and hypocrisy in this day. John chapter 2, at the beginning of Christ's ministry, we see him doing what we read here as well. (coughs) He comes to the city. It is the Passover time again. In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these from hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Vice and hypocrisy. Christ will again send them out of the temple at this time, the last time he comes to Jerusalem and to the temple. They hadn't learned. He had already chased them out three and a half years or so before on a previous Passover. And what did they do? Oh, he's gone. We'll go back to the way we were doing things. It was a corrupt system. The opportunities that were missed. Shortly after his triumphal entry, as Christ is here coming and going out of Jerusalem, he's going to announce the seven woes to his hearers in Matthew chapter 23. The possibilities that are there that are being lost. And as you continue in Matthew chapter 23, he looks prophetically forward, and we see it here as well, that this city is going to be leveled. God's hand of judgment is going to come upon you. This city is going to be made smooth, if you will, flattened. And in 40-ish years, at 70 AD, it will. It incurred punishments. Ruin is foreseen. Christ knew the past, the present, the future. He knew all that had been given them, the opportunities that they had, that they had squandered and lost. And would not allow to take place and go forward for God. Would that not cause us to weep? When my office is is set up, it's it's in, in the works, I have a small... Uh, It's a four-by-six, five-by-seven picture of my first college graduation. It has my home pastor, uh, who just recently passed away. And there are four men standing around him. Three of us, we were considered his preacher boys. We were high school students that... We went to school together the last two years that I was in high school at the Christian school. And another man received a doctor of divinity. He was a deacon in the church. 
and uh, felt called uh, to the ministry, but uh, the four of us were all men called to the ministry. And we all graduated at the same time. We all started at different times, but we all graduated together that same year. And uh, I, I love that picture. I love it especially now with the home going of Pastor Wingard. But as I look at that picture, I realize that there are also four other men that were in my home church that believed they were called to the ministry who either went and didn't finish or never started. Now, I'm not here to judge whether their calling was of God or not. That's between them and God. But I can only go on what was said. And to see them missing from that picture. And to further look and realize that one of those men in that picture, while he did go into the ministry and did serve the Lord, he spoke at my church plant. He would later, literally, run off with the church secretary and split his family and lose a ministry for God that he had. As we consider those things and those possibilities, I trust that it does bring tears to our eyes for those that have not followed when they've been given the opportunity to weep over them. To consider, not just to consider the lost opportunities, but the fact that they have turned from God, in some cases, not asked for God's forgiveness to get right. Or even more importantly, if they had the opportunity to come to Christ and not. I think of a man back in the church plant the year is 2001. <clears throat> we have what looks to be, I thought at the time, a, a good group that we could charter the church with. Before the summer has ended, those thoughts vanish. But there's a, young, there's a couple that are coming, and uh, she's just gung-ho about the church. They were attending a, a Methodist church in the area and just some craziness going on from the pulpit. Stumbled across us, really enjoyed it, but then they too stopped coming. And on September 11th, in the evening, we had arranged a time to sit down and talk with them. And since it's 2001, I think we understand the implications of September 11th. And uh, once again, had the opportunity to witness to the, the man was lost. And he remained lost that night. Though he was confronted with it, he knew it. Could understand the brevity of life that we were presented with, with what happened earlier that day, and still remained lost. I've not seen that man since. I pray for him and trust that maybe he did at some point 
before he passes, will come to know Christ as his Savior. He's heard. He's refused. It should cause us to weep. We know what's coming. Christ knows specifically to Jerusalem, you're going to be leveled in just a few short years. You've had opportunities galore to come to me and you haven't. Those tears are there because of what is possible and is not happening. The past, the present, the future is all there. Uh, We don't know all of that, obviously. But we do know the last chapter, do we not? We know that there's coming a time of seven years of God's judgment, the likes the world has never seen. And when we read through the book of Revelation, when we read other passages that speak of this judgment, it's not something I would wish on anyone. Does it prompt us to reach out to those around us? Because that day is far nearer now than it was when the book of Revelation was written. We may well be the generation that gets to hear the trumpet and the shout. And be the ones to disappear in a split second. And while that is wonderful and great. What does that mean? leave for those that are left behind. It leaves a time of tragedy the like, again, the world's never seen. Say, well, they'll come to Christ. Yeah, multitudes come to Christ, but far more multitudes don't. The characteristic of these tears of Christ. There is love being seen here. The preciousness of souls as he bears this out. Let's read those verses again. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round, And keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Christ sees the preciousness of souls, and he loves them. We have that great verse in John 3.16 that depicts that love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we see that love being demonstrated that here Christ is, living the perfect life that we could not. He's about to be our substitute for our sin when he is crucified on the cross of Calvary in just a few days. But as all of that is here, Christ is seeing this and he is showing forth his love. You have an opportunity, Jerusalem. And you're not availing yourself of it. 
There is pity, the peril of souls. He knows they're not going to respond. Christ knows that the Jews, by and large, are going to reject his message. We have multitudes following him throughout his earthly ministry. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were 500 brethren, along with the apostles, who saw the risen Lord. 511. Let's do the combining there. 511 after that saw Christ in his resurrected body that are believers. 511 out of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews to whom Christ came with the offer of salvation. And they rejected it. Soundly rejected it. That's why Christ is weeping. There is sorrow there because of all that is being offered and all that he knows that is being refused. Conclusions we can draw from it. There's peace there. There is reconciliation with God still available. It's depicted here. If thou hadst known even thou at this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace. He knows they're not, but the offer is still there. It's like, uh, what, in the book of Isaiah or Ezekiel, where you see often God's judgment, but his hand is stretched out still. Yes, there's judgment because of sin. But here's the offer of salvation and peace that's always here. Yes, God is a just God, but God is a loving God as well. And the offer of salvation is always there. Even when God's judgment is coming. Yes, God's going to judge in the tribulation time. But the offer of salvation will still be open to any and all who will come. That's our God. There is peace in that day. The opportunity is brief. Thy day that he brings up here. It's here. It's going to be brief, Israel, but it's here. God's offer of salvation is always there. That day is here. (coughs) The time of visitation they knew not. They weren't understanding it. But the day of visitation was there. Christ is there offering himself. Paul will put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
We then as workers together with him beseech you that beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee or helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The opportunity that God gives to us is today. Not tomorrow. We don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. Yesterday is past. We can't go back in time. We can lament it. We can look at those missed opportunities and wish as much as we want, but we can't wish it away. We can't wish ourselves back in time to make changes. God gives us today the opportunity for salvation is today. It's not tomorrow. Tomorrow may not come for us. He doesn't give us the promise of tomorrow. But he gives us the opportunity of today. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, as he speaks of the end times, noting that there are scoffers. There were scoffers in his day. And here he is just a few decades removed from Christ's earthly ministry. We're almost 2,000 years removed from it. Do we still have scoffers today? Sure we do. And guess what? We can give them this same verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. May we never presume upon the grace of God. May we never think that he's being slack. No, he's being long-suffering. Because he knows that there's a day coming when things will be much harder. Jerusalem. Oh, if you had known. If your eyes had truly been opened, Jerusalem, how things could have been different. But instead, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And the Jews to this day still long for a temple. A temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D. Christ is there. It's his triumphal entry, yes. But it's a time to try to get Israel to look at their eternal state and come to faith in God. And they would not. That's why there's tears in Christ's eyes. May we have tears for those around us as we consider We come back to Griffith Thomas as he closes his study. He says this. Let us sit at Christ's feet until we learn the secret of his tears 
and beholding the sins and sorrow of city and countryside, weep over them too. But let us not forget that the place of tears was the place of ascension and commission, in order that the gospel might be preached not only in Jerusalem, but unto the uttermost part of the earth. He draws us our, our attention to several days later when on that same mount, Christ will commission his disciples. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Take that message and go. May we consider that as we see the tears at the triumphal entry. Tears for a world lost. And may we go. We have the message of redemption. We have it here. May we take it to those around us. Because it is that message alone that will bring peace to the troubled heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for thy word. We thank you for the truths that are here. As we stop and reflect on the tears of Christ, as he stands there on the Mount of Olives, looking over Jerusalem, knowing the fate that awaits the city, knowing of the rejection of his offer of salvation, yet the offer is there still. We thank you and praise you. For those of us that are here that are saved, we thank you that someone brought that message of salvation to us and told us of thy great love. And we, in simple faith, responded to that offer of salvation, believing that Christ died in our place for our sins. Father, we know that there are those around us who are lost. Father, may we weep over them as Christ wept. We know what's coming. We know that your great judgment is not long to be poured out upon this world. And the opportunity becomes that much harder for anyone to hear the gospel. Now is the accepted time. May we be faithful in telling others. Even to the point of tears in praying for them. Father, we pray that you would do that work in hearts that only you can do. May we go forth in some respects rejoicing, Father, we know thee. Our eternal destinies are secure whether we pass from this life in death or whether we hear that shout and trumpet, we'll be in your presence. Father, there are others that should come along. May we seek to see them come. May we see thy hand of harvest and see others come with us. Guide us and direct us 
Keep our eyes upon thee, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.